So fentanyl is a, it can be a fantastic drug, especially for pain relief. And you know, it's hospitals use it quite often. Some people even get it prescribed. It's been around for decades. It's very strong. In terms, comparing it with heroin, it can be anywhere from 10 to roughly, I'd say about 25 times stronger than heroin. It is an opioid. But the problems that we're dealing with today isn't because pharmaceutical grade fentanyl is being diverted. Right, that's not the issue. I mean, we used to have an issue with Oxycontin, right? A lot of that was people would get it being diverted. That's not really the problem that we're confronted today. The problem with fentanyl that we're dealing with is what's is product that's illegally manufactured. Hello and welcome again to another episode of Sacktown Talks. Today, we're glad to be joined by Bo Kilmer with the Rand Corporation. Bo, how's it going? Thanks for joining us. Hey, glad to be here, Jared. Yeah, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of the, the Rand Research Group? Yeah, so uh, Rand is headquartered in Santa Monica. It's been there for about 75 years. And it's a, you know, it's a nonprofit, nonpartisan research organization, which really focuses on trying to improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis. We've got about a thousand researchers, you know, a lot of them in Santa Monica, but we've got offices in other parts of the country and other parts of the world, right. um, you know, kind of working on all the major public policy issues of our time, ranging from the environment, the economy, labor, education, national security, homeland security, but kind of at the nexus of the work that we do on health and the criminal legal system, as well as social and economic well-being, we have our Drug Policy Research Center, which I co-direct, where we kind of work on all aspects of substance use and drug policy. And so how did you get involved with RAND and kind of, you know, researching this uh, kind of Yeah, scenario? so the long story is, is, you know, I was really interested in drug policy when I was an undergrad. I grew up in northern Michigan, was going to Michigan State. And I just was really fascinated by, you know, how other countries were kind of deal, what I thought, how they were kind of dealing with their drug problems, how it seemed to be a bit different from what we were doing in the United States. So, you know, it didn't matter what class it was, whether it's economics, rhetoric, whatever it was, you know, I was doing, you know, I was writing about drug policy and written a couple op-eds here and there. And then, you know, at one point I thought it might be kind of interesting to see what it's like to work at a place that just does research on drug policy. Right. You know, so this is what, 25 years ago. And so, you know, there weren't a lot of organizations and most of the organizations that were in the space were either very much kind of pro-legalization or kind of anti-legalization. You know, and I didn't really fall into either of those camps, but I thought, well, what the heck, you know, it's just a summer. So I sent out a bunch of cover letters and packets and whatnot. And you know, I was about to take a position with an organization and then I stumbled upon RAND. I had never heard of the organization, but then, you know, I was kind of digging, you know, digging around the website and I saw that they actually did research on drug policy. So, I, you know, I kind of submitted my materials there and I got lucky for two reasons. One, it turned out that the woman in Santa Monica who kind of opened up my package was from, the, was from you know, uh, Indiana. So we kind of had this big 10 connection. And, uh, and then also... Uh, it turns out there were a couple people who were at Rand who had just left there that had started a book and on, on kind of on all on drug policy, and they were running really behind. 
So I think this woman thought, well, heck, maybe if we could bring this kid out for three months, <laughs> you know, to kind of do all the, you know, the, you know, the, the unfun work on the book and the footnotes and references and all that right. stuff, maybe we can move this along. So anyways, you know, they said, hey, do you want to come out to Santa Monica? And, you know, I've never, never been out of California before. So I road tripped out. Like, yeah. Wait, yeah, yeah. I was like, yeah, my girlfriend, we just had a great time. And, uh, but anyways, you know, when I got to Rand, I got to meet all the people and I, you know, I, I really enjoyed you know, the people that I met and the kind of projects they were working on. And, you know, at the end of three months, they said, uh, well, would you be interested in kind of continuing, you know, continuing to work for us? We'll give you a computer, you can work remotely. And I thought, I mean, of course, I mean, here I am, I mean, I'm back working like three jobs on campus for five bucks an hour, right? But right. you're going to actually pay me California wages to do research, you know, to help do research on all these kind of, you know, to address all these really interesting questions. So I stayed working with Rand. And so even when I was finishing up undergrad and doing my master's and my PhD, I was primarily working with folks at Rand. You know, as I said, I really enjoyed working with them. I thought they were asking the right questions, you know, and as I got more skills, I was able to do more. And so when I finished up with school, you know, 15, 16 years ago, I knew this is where I wanted to be. So I've uh, been working here full time ever since. Yeah, that's awesome. We were just talking to someone like if, if you go to school and you have a certain major, it's kind of like, well, how do you get a job? Like, what are you supposed to do? <laughs> yeah. A lot of people become teachers and go to law school. But yeah, if, if you can research for a living, you know, that's, that's awesome. Yeah, well, I mean, that was the funny. That was the interesting thing. And so, I, you know, I was an international relations major thinking, you know, really focused on poli sci. And, you know, after the summer at Rand, I didn't know that there was this whole field of study, you know, um, with respect to public policy and public administration. Right. And so I got back to Michigan State and I thought, well, I could, you know, either try to take more classes here or just finish up and then maybe try to look into a master's program. And um, and then so I was very fortunate I got into the master's program at Berkeley. And so pretty much have been in California for most of the time ever since. Oh, so that's awesome. So you've been going to school and working for Rand kind of at the same time for, for quite a while then. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there were there were some times when it was only, you know, you know, working at nights here and there. But right. uh no, I was, I was, yeah, really helped, you know, you know, during, you know, during school, I come down there for the summer, that type of thing. And, uh, you know, kind of helped with some of my dissertation research. Um, but I've got to say, you know, it's so interesting how, you know, how things have changed. And, you know, so for someone that does research on drug policy, it used to be the case that if you wanted to learn about kind of other approaches, a lot of what you were doing was kind of looking at how things were implemented in other countries. Right. Um but, you know, especially, you know, the past 10, you know, 10, 15 years, there's actually just been a lot of variation in drug policies within the United States. So it really has opened up the opportunities. And it's actually been great because, you know, because of these changes, there are a lot more people kind of doing research in this field, which I think is fantastic. No, it, it's very interesting. You know, we've we've had Scott Wiener on a couple of times oh, yeah. and, and talking about some of the, the things he's trying there in San Francisco and and then I was on Twitter and I saw he was on Dr. Phil and he was arguing with some other guy on Dr. <laughs> Phil about this stuff. Uh, kind of what, what do you think about some of the policy, you know, things that, that we're taking a look at, you know, trying to change things like what what does the research show about some of these things like, you know, you know, having what, what do they call inge safe injection sites, for example? Yeah. So. Um, so, yeah, so you've got safe injection sites they are also referred to as drug consumption rooms or supervised consumption sites. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they've uh, they've been around kind of outside of the United States for decades, uh, a number in Europe as well as in uh, uh, in Australia and a number have opened up in recent years in Canada. Right. And so I kind of say, probably, gosh, it's probably about five years now, um, you know, with some colleagues, we kind of did a deep dive 
and to really trying to figure out well, what does the research say about these supervised consumption sites? You know, because there have been multiple reviews out there that said, oh, there's 70 peer-reviewed studies, they're all quite positive. And so we kind of got under the hood and kind of really looked at all these studies. And it turns out that a lot, I mean, look, most of this, most of what's been written has been quite positive. Uh, there's no denying that. But what's What's somewhat problematic about the research is a lot of it doesn't necessarily allow you to determine whether or not, you know, participation, you know, in the supervised consumption site kind of led to this good outcome. Right. And so, so when we kind of looked at all the studies, we identified, you know, maybe, um, you know, maybe 10 that we thought actually were pretty decent in terms of having kind of realistic control groups. Right? So we could actually then begin to get a better sense of, well, how much of this change that we're seeing is attributable to the supervised consumption site versus, you know, versus potentially some other reason. Right. And I've got to say, you know, you know, so in terms of, um, so a lot of this research is kind of looking at, well, what happens in the community? You know, when, when a neighborhood opens up a site, how do, how do outcomes change compared to maybe neighboring communities or, you know, other neighborhoods? And so, you know, there was some early research coming out of uh, Vancouver, where Vancouver they've got, well, they now have multiple supervised consumption sites, but back then they only had one or very few. And, you know, and this was a paper that was published in The Lancet, so arguably one of the world's best journals. Right. And it found that after that supervised consumption site had opened up, that there actually was a reduction in deaths around that neighborhood, you know, and it had, you know, decent control groups. Um, now, there was another study uh, that kind of took a similar approach that looked at what happened when they opened up a supervised consumption site in uh, Sydney, Australia. And that one, they didn't find that it led to a reduction in, in deaths around the neighborhood, but that it did lead to a reduction in the number of kind of ambulance call-outs, right? So in terms of the number of people overdosing. Um, and, you know, but in terms of kind of outcomes with respect to crime, you know, that's where there's a lot of debate, you know, if you if you allow one of these centers, is it going to increase crime? I'd have to say of all the research I've seen, nothing suggests that opening one of these centers up increases crime. In fact, there are a couple of studies that suggest that it reduces them. Um, but the thing you have to keep in mind is that most of this research was done in places that, uh, you know, times and places that weren't affected by illegally manufactured fentanyl. Right. Um, but the other thing we do have to keep in mind is, you know, there have been millions, literally millions of injections that have been uh, supervised at these sites. There have been, you know, thousands of overdoses that have been addressed. And then kind of in the brick and mortar facilities, you know, I don't think anyone has ever died. Um, and so, uh, so anyways, um, you know, the, the issue here in the United States, you know, there are a lot of places that want to do this in the U.S. And in fact, New York actually has a few uh, supervised consumption sites that they've opened up. Um, you know, there's been a lot of conversation about this in in, um, in San Francisco. I mean, they had that Tenderloin Center, which ended up kind of serving as a supervised consumption site. But for the most part, there really hasn't been a lot of action in the United States uh, with respect to supervised consumption sites because of federal law. And uh, long story short, under the Controlled Substances Act, um, essentially there's something called the Crack House Statute, um, which, which suggests that, you know, um, if you've got a, you know, this facility and you know that people are using drugs there, you could be held liable and it's illegal. And uh, so anyways, so over the years, as different communities have talked about opening up, opening up supervised consumption sites, um, you know, you know, folks from the Department of Justice would, you know, send out memos, write op-eds, even sometimes file uh, lawsuits saying you can't do this. 
And um, so it's going to be really interesting to see kind of how this continues to play out at the federal level. You know, obviously one thing, you know, and I, and I do think because of this, because of the, the um, because of the federal law that is holding some jurisdictions back from, right. from even experimenting with this. So, you know, there are a couple of different things that could happen. I mean, in theory, you know, you could pass a bill, you know, you know, making these supervised consumption sites exempt from the, um, you know, Controlled Substances Act. I can't imagine that actually passing anytime soon in, uh, in DC. Right, with the politics as they are. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But, you know, the other thing that they could do is, you know, especially if you're going, because if you're going to allow states and localities to experiment, kind of given where we are with this overdose crisis, you know, the other thing they could do is treat the supervised consumption sites uh, like we deal with cannabis, right? Cannabis is still all illegal under federal law. Right. Remember, and it wasn't, you know, when Washington and Colorado passed in 2012, you know, no one was quite sure what the federal government was going to do. And, you know, it wasn't until later in 2013, Department of Justice came out, they issued a memo and said, look, hey, this is all illegal under federal law. But as long as you're following these different guidelines, it won't be a priority for us to kind of target you. And this was referred to as the Cole memo. And even when Trump got into office and that memo was rescinded, for all intents and purposes, the federal approach didn't change. You know, the feds have been pretty much hands off here. So that you can imagine that they could do something similar with respect to supervised consumption sites. They could put out a, you know, they could put out one of these memos saying, look, we believe this is illegal under federal law. However, if you're following certain guidelines, you know, we're not, it won't right. be an enforcement priority for us. And so, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to kind of see how this plays out. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's just kind of one example of kind of harm reduction um, that, that gets a fair amount of attention. Uh, you know, uh, while there's a lot of discussion in the U.S. about these fentanyl test strips, right? I mean, you know, um, you know, some places still prohibit them, but, you know, a testing strip, essentially, you know, you could determine whether or not your heroin or your cocaine or other substance, whether or not it's just a binary yes or no, you know, whether or not you've got, uh, uh, whether or not there's fentanyl kind of in that right. sample. You know, there are other approaches where you could actually with drug checking, where you could actually do more sophisticated tests, where you could get a better sense of not only, you know, is there fentanyl in this, but how much fentanyl is there? And so you see a lot of work kind of being done on that in Canada as well, kind of taking this to the next step. And, you know, so that obviously not only provides information to the people who use drugs about kind of what they're consuming, but it also provides a lot of information, you know, for those in public health and those doing research, getting a sense of actually what's in the market. Right. Right. I mean, that's, I mean, that's, I think that's one of the, um, you know, there's a lot of sad things that have come with this overdose crisis. Um but part of um, part of what's frustrating as a researcher is, you know, we don't in our country, we don't know how many people use heroin. We don't know how many people um, who are using illegally manufactured fentanyl. We used to have that information. We, in fact, I was I led the, the team a couple of times for the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy to actually estimate those numbers. And uh, you know, it takes information from a lot of different data sets um, to do that to do that work. And, um, and unfortunately, you know, of all those different data sets, there was one, it was called the Arrestee Drug Abuse Monitoring Program. And we don't usually say abuse anymore, that stigmatizing language, but that was the, the name of this program was referred to as Adam. And this was um, um, a data system where they actually interviewed people who were in jails. It didn't matter if you were there for a drug offense or not, and, you know, had nothing to do with their case. But they would ask you questions about, you know, what drugs have you been consuming? How much did you purchase? What did you pay for it? You know, it provided really rich information about kind of what was happening in these markets. 
you know, and at one point it was operating in 40 different counties throughout the United States. So it was a really useful uh, data source for a lot of different reasons. Um, but, you know, the, the program ended up getting officially cut in 2013. So here we are, you know, in 2013, that's when, you know, things really started to pick up with illegally manufactured fentanyl. And, uh, and, and the thing which was interesting about this Adam program is that not only did it, uh, you know, you know, did they ask a lot of uh, questions, uh, you know, to the people who were incarcerated, but then they asked them if they'd be willing to submit to a drug test, you know, because this was right after they had been booked, and so you know, it would have nothing to do with their case, but it would allow the the researchers then to kind of validate kind of whether or not they're being honest, but also to get a sense of kind of what other what substances they're using that they may not know that they were using. And, you know, most agreed to it. So I just think back to, wow, if we actually had that program still in operation today, we would have been able to get a much better sense about kind of the spread of fentanyl, of illegally manufactured fentanyl and other synthetic opioids a lot earlier. Um, we'd have a much better sense about the total number of people who are using, which is really important information to have. I mean, think about in terms of resource allocation, um, in terms of trying to measure the effectiveness of different programs. I mean, this is very basic information that we just right. don't have. And so, you know, the United States, we kind of used to be a leader when it came to kind of the drug data infrastructure. That's no longer the case. It's interesting. Like I remember in like 2016, you heard about like this opioid crisis and like now, now all we hear is fentanyl, fentanyl, fentanyl. Yeah. What, is, what is fentanyl? What is it going into and why, why is it a crisis? And why did we hear no, about I mean, it until like two years? Yeah. Ago? So, uh, so fentanyl is a, um, it can be a fantastic drug, uh, you know, especially for pain relief. And, you know, it's hospitals use it quite often. Um, you know, some people even get it prescribed. Um, you know, it's been around for decades. Um, it's very strong. Um, you know, in terms comparing it with heroin, it can be anywhere from 10 to, you know, roughly, I'd say about 25 times stronger than heroin. Um, but, you know, it, it is an opioid. Um, but the problems that we're dealing with today isn't because pharmaceutical grade fentanyl is being diverted, right? That's not the issue. I mean, we used to have an issue with Oxycontin, right? right. That a lot of that was people would get it being diverted. That's not really the problem that we're confronted today. The problem with fentanyl uh, um, that we're dealing with is what's uh, is product that's illegally manufactured. And uh, so, you know, the United States, we've had, you know, People started really talking about this, you know, Jerry Wright, kind of 2014, 15, 16. I mean, we had had other, you know, isolated incidents in the past where, you know, some there might have been one chemist in Mexico who was actually producing fentanyl and made it to the United States and ended up killing a number of people. But then they were able to go shut down that one lab or, you know, that one person. Right. You know, we, so there have been kind of, you know, some isolated incidents, but things really started to change right around 2013. And at that time, um, it was believed that most of the fentanyl that was then coming into the United States was, was coming from Mexico. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, it was coming from China. So it was being produced there, and then it was being shipped over um, you know, to the U.S. And then early on, um, what, what we ended up seeing was that it was being mixed with heroin. So people would, you know, they would get a bag, and they, they, they would think it was heroin. Um, but it turns out there may just be a little bit of fentanyl in there. And because fentanyl is so strong and it's so cheap to produce, you know, you can, it makes it a lot easier. So if you've got a kilo of heroin or whatever, you sprinkle in a little bit of uh, fentanyl, that's going to go a lot further. So, you know, so and, and for, you know, from a drug dealer's perspective, it, it makes sense. 
Um, so anyway, so what we started seeing is, yeah, 2013, 14, 15, especially on the East Coast and parts of the Midwest, you were hearing a lot more about people, you know, who were, you know, you know, who ended up overdosing, you know, they didn't necessarily know that they were using fentanyl, you know, you could really think about this more like a poisoning crisis. No one was, and, you know, very few people were asking for fentanyl. Right. Um, it was just kind of showing up. So that started kind of picking up. And then we began to see, you know, it began to move, you know, uh, you know, from the East Coast, Midwest, it started to move its way West. Um, then I would say right around 2018, 2019, that's when it, the Mexican drug trafficking organizations got a bit more involved or a lot more involved, I should say. So it's believed that um, they're like, that, Oh, it's a business opportunity. <laughs> oh, totally is. Yeah. 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 It's, I mean, cause as New I said, wave coming. yeah. Yep. And uh, so it used to be the case that, that, you know, you, you need your precursor chemicals in order to kind of produce it. And so that is, so those chemicals were produced in China, then they would kind of produce the, the fentanyl there and then they would ship it over. Um, well, what ended up changing, you know, right around 2018, 2019, is that, you know, the Mexican drug trafficking organizations got much more involved in production. So they were still, they were importing the precursor chemicals from China, but they were producing the, the fentanyl in Mexico. And so, and it was coming, it would either be kind of mixed into powders or, you know, you were seeing a lot more in terms of the counterfeit pills. Uh, I mean, there we there there have been issues with counterfeit pills before, but then you begin seeing a lot more in terms of you know you know people thinking that they're taking an oxycontin pill, they think they're taking a Xanax, right. but actually it just got filler and it's got some fentanyl in there. And so, so you saw this kind of change in production, but then also you know in terms of kind of the way the market was, so you still had it being mixed in with heroin, but then you know there are some places now kind of you know. Um, in, you know, especially on the East Coast, where it's actually kind of hard to find heroin, um, you know, because, you know, fentanyl just kind of dominated and it was cheaper. And then also, you know, people, you know, it really kind of, you know, people became more tolerant. So it, it would cost a lot more to try to uh, kind of maintain that, uh, maintain that habit if you were getting heroin as opposed to doing it with fentanyl. Um, so, so you had a couple of different things happening. So then, you know, so you had it, you, it was being mixed in with heroin. Then you saw more kind of happening with the uh, with the um, counterfeit pills, and that's still and it's killing a number of people today. And and that's you know especially for people that are opioid naive. You go to a party, you think you're taking this kind of pill that someone might have gotten from a you know um, you know someone's bathroom or whatever, and it turns out that it actually was you know um, illegally manufactured. Um, but then you've also got, and we hear more about people about you know fentanyl being kind of mixed in with other drugs. Right. That's pretty hard to measure, you know, especially if you're analyzing the death data, you know, and so I've been doing some work with some other colleagues. And so we could see, okay, when someone died, did they have fentanyl in their system? Did they have cocaine? What other drugs did they have? Um, and, and, and definitely, there, you know, you know, most of the people that are dying, they have multiple drugs in their system. Um, but those data don't allow, don't really tell you about whether or not, you know, the fentanyl was mixed in with the cocaine. Or someone did cocaine the day before and then did fentanyl that day and then overdosed. Um, but you are hearing more about it being mixed in. And, and definitely, I mean, for people that are using cocaine and, uh, and you know, and some of these other drugs, you know, it definitely would make sense to be using these fentanyl uh, uh, test strips to make sure there's no fentanyl in there. Just to kind of get a, a, a scope of the fentanyl issue, like how many people are, are dying per year of, of fentanyl overdoses right now? Oh, so nationally, I think we're at about, we're at over a, 
I want to say 105,000, somewhere around there. So slightly above 100,000 um, people are dying from drug overdoses each year. I think it's roughly around two-thirds, 70% of these involve what's classified as synthetic opioids other than methadone. Um, but in general, that's this illegally manufactured fentanyl. Um, so it's killing a number of people. And, and the other thing, Jared, I wanted to talk about is, and what we see definitely like in parts of San Francisco, is you then had a whole market where people were just looking for fentanyl. Oh, so now people are looking for it. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so, so that's how things have changed. And so the dynamics in San Francisco, which I'm most familiar with, um, it's been really interesting. And so, um, you know, it, it, it fentanyl didn't hit here. I mean, it took a while for it to hit. But when it did enter the market, it wasn't necessarily being mixed in with heroin, right? It was a whole kind of separate market, you know, so a dealer might have heroin in one pocket to sell you and, uh, and would have fentanyl powder in the other. And there are a lot of different uh, kind of hypotheses for this. I mean, part of the reason is that on, on, on the West Coast, um, you know, the heroin uses is usually black tar, whereas on, on the East Coast, it's usually a powder. So with a powder, it's a lot easier to kind of mix the fentanyl in. Um, so anyway, so some people were, thought that that may have been kind of a, a protect, a potentially a protective effect in terms of delaying when fentanyl kind of hit the market in, uh, you know, on, on in the um, in the West Coast or on the West Coast. Oh, but yeah, now it's yeah in in San Francisco. Um, you had, I mean, I think for a while there, you had, a, you know, it still may be the case, like a couple people overdosing and dying every day. Yeah, um, roughly. Yeah, so so we have a, a new legislative sessions coming. We got a whole bunch of new members coming in, mm-hmm. and a lot of them are talking about, "Hey, we want to solve this fentanyl crisis. We got to do something." What should they be focusing on? What does the research say? Oh wow! So there's a there are a lot of different things that I think could probably help, but there's no single solution. No silver you know? bullet out there. No, there's no silver bullet. I mean, the other thing to keep in mind is, um, you know, so we were trying to estimate just, you know, how much fentanyl, illegally manufactured fentanyl is actually consumed in the United States, right? And um, and so long story short, think about this in terms of the pure amounts, our best estimate was that around 2021, um, that the total amount of uh, Ill- illegally manufactured fentanyl that kind of, in terms of it, that, that's 100% pure, so the, the kind of pure metric tons and consumed in in in, in the uh, in the country, we're talking single digit metric tons. Let me put this in perspective. The last time this was estimated for other drugs was 2016, when it was believed there might have been 150 to 200 pure metric tons of cocaine used. Wow. For heroin, it was probably closer to 50 pure metric tons. Here we're talking about single digit pure metric tons. So I mean, supply reduction was already difficult beforehand. So, um, and, you know, it's just so pure and it's so compact um, that, uh, you know, thinking that you're going to be able to uh, eliminate the supply um, is um, that that seems very unrealistic. Um, But so in terms of what could actually could be done, um, definitely, you know, this idea of really innovating, you know, you know, we wrote a book on this, you know, three, three, four years ago really kind of saying, look, we need to pay attention to this. We kind of looked at what had happened in some other countries. So look, we need to think about this more like a poisoning crisis than a traditional drug epidemic. And, and if you think about it more as a poisoning crisis, it really should kind of open up other policy solutions, or at least different things you should try. Um, and so, you know, for example, the supervised consumption sites, that's not going to solve the problem. 
right. you know, but it could it could help in some places. Same with the drug checking services. Um, um, so there are some things that you know it'd be worth it'd be worth trying. You know, it's um, and it's um, you know th those are you know th those are a couple of different examples. But I, I mean, the most important thing is we need to continue to provide access or increase access to high quality treatment. And here, funding is necessary, um, but it's not necessarily sufficient. In that, it's not just. About, I mean, yes, funding helps. We also need to make sure that we're not funding, uh, you know, treatments that could be doing more harm. You know, for example, detox, we know follow up, that type of thing. Um, so, so money is important, but also, you know, part of the issue is that so much of kind of when we talk about substance use disorder treatment, it's kind of done in this whole kind of specialty sector. It's not necessarily a part of kind of mainstream healthcare. That's starting to change a little bit with buprenorphine, where you can kind of go in and get prescribed that if you have an opioid use disorder. Um, but there, we need to do a lot more in terms of integrating substance use disorder treatments with mainstream healthcare. And part of that is just kind of in terms of how it's funding, but also part of that is also reducing stigma and getting more physicians to to you know to learn more about you know treating addiction and getting more involved. And so ideally, you know, so you'd have more primary care physicians actually kind of helping to treat some of these individuals with substance use disorders, you know, and then if that treatment doesn't work, then maybe at that point, they could go more to the specialty sector. But yeah, by, by definitely kind of integrating it more with mainstream healthcare, it's not only going to increase access, um, but also I think it can help kind of reduce some of the stigma as well. You know, some, yeah, and then, but the other part is there are a lot of administrative barriers as well and regulatory barriers, right? I mean, if you want to get access, if you have an opioid use disorder and you want to get access to methadone, you actually have to go to a separate clinic and you've got to go there you know once a day and only after a certain amount of time will they even begin to give you some take-home doses right and i mean that's just you know that's not the case in other countries you know so there's a lot of barriers and then also at the end of the day too you know when is treatment going to be available you know i mean i did some work I, I was part of i i was fortunate enough to be um one of the facilitators for san francisco street level drug dealing task force and uh, which brought a lot brought a lot of people together that didn't necessarily agree. Uh, they had very different perspectives, but they were able to come up with a kind of a consensus uh, number of, of recommendations. You know, and one of those recommendations was making treatment available twenty four seven. Right? You know, you know, if someone like eleven o'clock at night, uh, if they've decided you know they don't want to use anymore, that they actually want to get buprenorphine or get access to some other medications, you know, we should make that easy. We should make that more available. Instead of people, yeah, I think your only option may be to go to the hospital uh, right. or go to the emergency room. You know, there's some very basic things. So obviously, as I said, money for treatment is important, uh, but it's not it's it's not sufficient. We need to really kind of do a better job of mainstreaming um, uh, addiction treatment with uh, mainstream healthcare. Um, it's kind of interesting. Like you started uh, studying international relations and here you are, you get to use it, you know, you get to see oh, all these yeah. other countries, you know, where the drugs are coming <laughs> from, who's doing good stuff, who's doing bad stuff. It's, it's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, that's, what's been really interesting, you know, and the other thing about treatment is, you know, in terms of, you know, there's certain, you know, the medications that we use to treat opioid use disorder in the United States. Uh, um, you know, if you look at other countries, you know, some of them use other, you know, allow for other substances as well. Um, you know, so there are other medications. So you can think about it, in, you know, in some other countries, the physicians just have bigger toolboxes, right? 
So that's another thing too, making it easier to begin trying some of these other types of medications, you know, because methadone and buprenorphine, they work for a lot of people. They don't work for everyone. Right. You know, I mean, it's just like any other type of medication, right? You know, it works for some people, not everyone. So sometimes you got to try something different. So I think there's a lot we could do in terms of um, just kind of looking at how, you know, even just opioid use disorder itself, you know, what, what are the other uh, medications that are being used and trying them here in the United States? What country, what country out there is getting it right that, you know, Oof. that we should, you know, look towards or emulate or? Well, it depends. I mean, Jared, that's a great question, but it really depends on kind of what type of problem you're talking about, mm-hmm. right? I mean, so much of the focus is on, you know, overdose deaths and opioids, which is important, but also we know that when we're talking about overdoses, you know, stimulants and methamphetamine are playing a much bigger role as well um, in, in, in some of those overdose deaths. Um, but I guess other, kind of just talking to you, like what, what as a parent is the diversity of drugs and regional differences and things like that. Oh, like, yeah. And, 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 the, you know, and, and Jared, the thing that doesn't get as much attention is that alcohol is still our biggest problem. Right. In terms of substance and uh, in, in terms of, uh, you know, uh, dr- uh, substance use and, and death and disease and violence. And uh, so, and, and definitely the United States, um, overall, we don't do a very good job of regulating alcohol. I mean, obviously, you know, when you get a beer, you know what's in there, but in terms of, you know, the power of the cor- of the companies, advertising, the prices are too low. Um, so I've actually been doing some interesting research, gosh, now for about 10 years, kind of looking at this idea of um, losing your license to drink. Right. Right. So you think about it, right? When you turn 21 in the United States, you essentially get a license to purchase and consume as much alcohol as you want, Mm -hmm. which raises the question, what, what point should we maybe revoke or suspend your license? Right. You know, in terms of, you know, when, when alcohol is leading you to repeatedly threaten public health, public safety, right. After you you maybe get your third DUI or after you've, you know, you've gotten arrested multiple times for, you know, for assault because of alcohol, you know, at what point should we revoke that license? And so, you know, so I've been doing research on this program, which started in South Dakota almost 20 years ago. It's, it's fascinating. And so, yeah, so it was about 20 years ago, uh, the governor there put together this blue ribbon commission, trying to figure out a way to reduce incarceration. He didn't want, you know, he didn't want to be sending more people to prison. He didn't want to build more prisons. So it brings together kind of all these different state leaders. And at the time, there was a new attorney general in the state. And who was who ended up being a part of this commission? And with this, his name was Larry Long. So what Attorney General Long said is, "Look, you know, before I was the Attorney General, I was also a prosecutor, and this he was in you know in this county that maybe had two, three thousand people." And he said, "You know, the thing is, is so many of the people that are coming back to prison are coming back because of issues related to alcohol. And so, you know, back when I was a prosecutor." When I would tell people, you know, when I would, you know, after like their second DUI or third DUI or, you know, you know, multiple offenses related to, you know, violence and alcohol, he would say, look, when I would tell people not to drink, you know, as a condition of bond or as a, you know, or ended up being as a condition of probation, um, I would actually make them come into my office or come into the sheriff's office once in the morning and once at night, every single day and blow into a breathalyzer. Wow. If there was any alcohol in their system, they would go to jail for a night. So the idea was to hold people accountable, but not necessarily, you know, revoke their probation or, you know, and have them go back for a year or something. Um, so anyway, so this is something he was doing, I think, in the 80s, 90s. 
And um, so we said, hey, you know, I, this seemed to make a difference in my small county. Why don't we try a pilot program? And, you know, the story I've heard is people just kind of laughed at him. There's like, like, you know, people have been drinking for 30 years. You're not going to get them to stop, let alone come right. in twice a day. Um, but, you know, he was the attorney general. And uh, so he ended up, uh, he knew a few judges and was able to get them to do a pilot program in South Dakota, started in a few counties. And they were just kind of initially focused on people who, you know, was their second or third or fourth DUI offense. And sure enough, the people were coming in twice a day. And the vast majority of, you know, almost all of the tests, you know, they were coming in, they weren't testing positive for alcohol. And so the judges, to be honest, I think were a bit surprised, but they were impressed. And so the judges, then they started freelancing. They're like, you know, this pilot program was supposed to be for people who get arrested for DUI, but, you know, I've got this person who was arrested for domestic violence. I know that alcohol was part of his issue. You know, I would, you know, I'll send him to the program. So the judges started to kind of freelance. Then they started talking to judges in other counties and hey, I got this program seems to be making a difference. And so the program began to spread. So fast forward to like 2009, 2010, you know, I'm doing research primarily on illegal drugs. And someone comes up to me and said, well, I know you're primarily working on cocaine and heroin and meth, but I got to tell you about this alcohol program. So he starts telling me about this program in South Dakota and how, um, you know, in some places you would have hundreds of people coming in every morning and every night. Wow. And to be honest, my jaw just kind of dropped. I was a bit in disbelief. And, you know, so after that conversation, you know, I went to my boss at Rand and I said, hey, I just learned about this program. I don't know if this is going to turn into anything, but would you, you know, kind of cover my time to go road trip South Dakota <laughs> so I could kind of see this program in operation. And he's like, go for it. And, you know, I made the mistake of going in the middle of February. I was going to say, you didn't go in the winter, did you? <laughs> I did. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm from Northern Michigan, but, you know, California may be soft. Anyways, right. so I get there and sure enough, there are some counties. We did have hundreds of people coming in every morning, every night. You now there are other, some smaller counties where maybe you had a handful of people. But, you know, kind of as I saw this program operating in, I don't know, four or five, six different counties, it seemed to me like, okay, there's something to this, I, potentially, but what they actually need is an independent evaluation. So at the end of this trip, I go to the attorney general and said, look, you know, you, what you need is an independent evaluation. And what that would mean is you'd have to open up your books to me, give me access to the data. You'd have no control over the results. But if you could promise me that, I could probably go to one of the federal agencies to try to get some funding to evaluate the program to see if it really is making a difference. And he was like, go for it. So anyways, so I did that, got some federal funding. And so, yes, yeah, so for the past 10 years, we've been evaluating this program. And we found that it not only kind of reduces, obviously, repeat uh, arrest for, for DUI, um, leads to reductions in arrest for domestic violence, also leads to a reduction in deaths. Right. Um, and, uh, and so some people are like, well, hey, that's just South Dakota. Can this work somewhere else? Well, you know, they implemented the program in North Dakota, which, you know, it's pretty similar. We, we, you know, saw pretty similar effects there. We've evaluated the program in Montana, also seeing pretty large effects there. So it really does seem to make a difference for individuals. Um, but I got to tell you, the program itself is controversial from a couple different angles. You know, some people um, don't like it because there's no treatment component. So this isn't like kind of a drug court, right, where someone, you know, they, they order you to go to treatment. Um, this program just says, look, you need to come in and, you know, you know, blow into a breathalyzer twice a day. I mean, now some of the people that wear those alcohol monitoring bracelets, but essentially, um, so there's a number of kind of technologies involved now. 
Um, but anyways, they're like, we, we just want you to, you know, you're not, you, you just need to abstain from drinking. We don't, if you want to go to treatment, that's fine. We don't care. Um, you know, but, and then there are other people that are like, well, you know, Hey, it's a night in jail. Um, you know, and, 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 and you know, and, and could you do something, you know, what if it was, you know, do you have to incarcerate someone? Um, and that's a really good question. I mean, I, the, the thing is, is it reduces, you know, it's significant overall lead to a net reduction, even if there are people spending a night or two in jail here or there, you know, that to the extent that it's reducing all these repeat drunk driving arrests and convictions right. <laughs> overall, it's leading to a bigger reduction. Um, and then, you know, there are other people too, you know, cause you know, in terms of, you know, reducing drunk driving, you know, there's those interlock devices, right? They, you, you kind of, you put them on the car, right, you, you have to blow it. into it, that type of thing. And uh, so I, I've noticed that kind of, you know, the, the folks that kind of are supportive of the interlock devices, they've always tended to dism dismiss this program, you know, because this program isn't, you know, because they're like, well, we need to focus on the driving. Whereas this program's like, no, we need to actually focus on reducing the alcohol consumption. And so I got to tell you, as That's a researcher, yeah. I'm like, well, let's let's compare them. <laughs> right. So, like, how many people die from uh, drunk driving every year? Isn't it like millions? No. Oh, no, 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 no. Um, I want to say traffic fatalities are somewhere each year. I want to say they're somewhere around ten thousand, anywhere between ten to fifteen thousand. Um, I I don't know what share involve alcohol. Um. It's a fair amount, um, but that's just a small portion, right? There are a lot of other accidents, right? Right, and then you know, and then there's like a program. It was like every 15 minutes, there's a there's a oh, yeah, alcohol related. Could, yeah, it's a no. I mean, alcohol crash. in terms of um, you know, it's it's a leading cause of premature death. I mean, not just for accidents, but also excessive uh, drinking in terms of links with cancer, cardiovascular disease, right? And um, so, so I mean, I think what this program does is. It's, you know, it's very different from the rest of the criminal legal system, right? When we think about arrests and prosecution, oftentimes it's kind of this black box. It's not very transparent. And, you know, you could get arrested for a DUI and it might be six months before you have your case, right? You know, this program is very different and that is extremely transparent. It says, look, here's what you're going to do and here are the consequences. And so it's kind of referred to as kind of being swift, certain and fair. Right. right. You know, they're not going to revoke your probation and have you go back, you know, you know, and spend two years behind bars or something. But the idea is to really hold people accountable. And, you know, some of the research we've done at the individual level suggests that there, for some individuals, even after they're done with the program, you know, it, it does seem to be affecting their behavior afterwards. Right. So you can imagine that some people, once they're done with the program, they may go back to drinking the same amount that they were drinking before. There could be other people who may just, you know, who may go back to drinking, but maybe not drink as much. Right. And then there could be some people that just, you know, they're like, you know what, I'm done. And uh, so there's a lot more to learn about this program. And I mean, the big question for me is, you know, can this actually work in a more urban environment? Um, or, or, to, or can it work with other substances as well? Yeah, yeah. And so, um, so there, yeah, so there is a program that was um, similar to this. that um, was kind of started at the same time in Hawaii, but it was largely focused on, it was focused on illegal drugs. Mm -hmm. um, it did really well in Hawaii. They tried replicating it in parts of the United States and, you know, and they, they tried to implement this program in four different areas. Um, in, in general, it didn't necessarily kind of reduce arrests, reduce convictions, kind of what they kind of what you saw in, uh, in Hawaii, but it did reduce substance use. So, so it, it can work. I got to tell you though, if you were going to do this program today, 
uh, you got to be real careful with opioids, right? Because you get somebody in this program and say, you know, they reduce their opioid consumption for a while. And then if they go back to the market and their tolerance is down and just the, you know, the opioid market today, it's just so deadly and dangerous. Interesting. Yeah. So I, I would, you have to be real careful. Like I, I, I think, you know, for other substances, um, I think it makes a lot, it's worth trying. You know, the thing is, is I don't know if this is going to work in every place. I, I doubt it would, but you know, the evidence that we've seen so far suggests that it's worth considering. And in fact, there were some bills in California 2016, 17, 18, to try a pilot program, um, never made it through. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just, so it'd be interesting to kind of see, you know, can this type of, as I said there, you know, some people do the twice a day testing, other people will wear those alcohol monitoring bracelets. Right. Um, yeah, that, you know, they test your sweat every 30 minutes for alcohol and there are, there are other devices. I mean, look, at the end of the day, these technologies are just going to keep getting better and cheaper, but it's what we do with that information that ultimately determines whether or not, you know, you know, it, it affects public health and public safety. Right. Yeah, but like anyways, your, it gets, your Apple Watch can do so much. I'm sure. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, but and so it really is this idea of saying, look, you know, and when you turn 21, you, you know, you kind of get this license to, you know, purchase and consume as much alcohol. But, you know, this is a program that's really targeted at people who have repeatedly threatened public health and public safety for their alcohol use. Right. Because of that, you know, it's not, you know, someone who just has an MIP, and it's usually not for people that are your first DUI, right? Um, so anyway, it's an interesting kind of approach. And so, yeah, like it'd be interesting, to, you know, to see whether or not this would work in other areas, but there's so many other kind of questions I have, you know, this is a program, it, you know, creates a deterrent effect, but it's really all about the stick, right? You know, if you have any alcohol in your system and you go to jail for a night, well, we also know there's a lot of research on what's called contingency management, which focuses much more on positive incentives. You know, so what if you had it to where not only, you know, so yes, if you test positive for alcohol, you go to jail for a night, but if you go two weeks without testing positive at all, um, maybe we give you like a voucher to, to go to a movie or for a fast food meal. I know that may not sound like it would make much of a difference, but there's a tremendous amount of research that's been done on what's called contingency management that actually shows that people, even those that have substance use disorders, that they, they will scale back. You know, some of them will scale back their consumption. In fact, you hear a lot of people talking about that approach uh, in terms of dealing with methamphetamine um, use disorder in California. Um, and uh, so there's questions about, you know, well, if you added positive incentives, you know, could it, could it make more of a difference? Right. Also, you know, what is the minimum level of sanction that you need to create this deterrent effect? As I said, the way they've done it there has been, you know, a night or two in jail. Well, what if it was six hours in jail or what if it was house arrest? You know, what if it was something else besides, you know, a full night, uh, you know, in a holding cell? So there are a lot of different questions I have, you know, and as a researcher, you know, I want, I'd love to have an opportunity, you know, to figure this out. It kind of in, in your ideal world, if you were to do a pilot here in California, kind of where would that be and how would you set it up? Mm. And how much would it cost? Yeah, well, that's, that depends. Um, Obviously, you know, and I've tried, you know, I've tried doing some of these kind of, you know, setting up essentially what you want is what they would call a randomized control trial, right? You know, this is what we do with medications with the FDA, right? Someone has a, you know, a particular condition, you know, they randomly assign some people actually get the, the drug that's being investigated. Other people might get a placebo and then they kind of look at their outcomes, right? They randomly assign them and that's how they kind of be, you know, they can, that allows you to kind of rule out what they refer to as selection effects and kind of allows you to rule out alternative explanations if you're randomly assigning who gets this. So I'm, 
So ideally, it would be great to do a pilot, you know, somewhere in California, um, where you actually have the opportunity where you could randomly assign people um, to where maybe some people get, you know, kind of the sanction that they typically would get now uh, for DUI, and then other people could be part of this 24-7 program. Or, you know, the other thing you could do is, you know, it'd be interesting that, you know, uh, for, for those who would, you know, typically get interlock devices. Right. Right. Randomly assigned. Okay. These, you know, of these people, of everyone in a particular county, it's their, you know, third, D, second DUI, for example. Um, you know, for those, you know, and if they were typically, you know, some people would get randomly assigned to interlock, other people would get randomly assigned to this 24 seven program. And then we would follow them over time and, to, and obviously not only kind of look at what happens in terms of arrest for drunk driving, but you'd also want to look at, you know, arrests for domestic violence, other types of violence. Um, so you'd want to look at more than just kind of what happens. Um, so, um, and, and then, yeah, I mean, and then, I mean, if you had a lot of money, <laughs> you know, and then it'd be really interesting to kind of look at even within the, the people that are doing the 24 seven sobriety program, you know, yeah, I have questions about, well, you know, who does better those that come in twice a day or, you know, versus those that maybe wear the alcohol monitoring bracelet versus those that use other technologies. So I think that's another question I have too. You know, um, in terms of um, figuring, and my guess is that certain types of testing and certain types of regimes work better for different types of individuals. But we're never going to really know that unless we do the research on that. Right. And so, so as I said, yeah, there, I mean, there there was some movement to at least try a pilot program in California for a while. Um, I don't know if it's going to come back, um, but you know, we've continued to kind of do research on this in multiple states, and in fact, in uh, the United Kingdom, kind of based on our research. They started a program, kind of refer, they refer to it as mandatory sobriety, um, which isn't it isn't identical to twenty four seven sobriety, um, but it's pretty similar. And they they're you know people who have alcohol related offenses, they've got to wear the monitoring bracelet for up to four months. And I I don't know if the it, the program just kind of started there, so I don't know if anyone's doing an evaluation um, there. They don't necessarily. It's a lot harder to kind of have this swift, certain, and fair sanction, right there. They're, you know, they're much more likely to have warnings. Um, and so you would think that it may not have as much of a deterrent effect, but that's an empirical question. Um, but, uh, but anyways, you know, obviously it's going to be implemented in some, you know, more urban areas there. So um, someone will pay attention to, but it's, you know, like, as I said, I don't know if this program's going to work, you know. Um, Only you know. one way to find out. Yeah. Yeah. And trying yeah. to figure out, you know, and especially like, yeah, in urban areas, um, it would be fascinating to see if this yeah. can make a difference. That, that's really interesting. You know, so much has been tried over, you know, the past, what, 50 years on, on drugs and substances, you know, just say no, you know, close the borders, build a fence, yeah. uh, legalize everything. Kind of what, what do you see? What, what policies actually work and what policies should we, you know, put our, our funding behind and, and seriously consider? Now that's a great question. And at the end of the day, one, it depends on the substance that you're talking about. And it also depends on kind of your values and goals, right? So, I mean, that's the thing. So, you know, I'm a researcher at RAND. You know, we don't come out and say, oh, you should legalize or you should not legalize or you should do X or you should not do Y, right? A lot of the research that I've been doing, you know, starting in California, you know, 12, 13 years ago, is really trying to help jurisdictions understand that if you're going to go down this pathway toward uh, like looking at these alternatives to prohibiting, you know, for example, cannabis supply, you're going to confront a number of choices, right? And the and the and the kind of the decisions you make along the way are ultimately going to influence 
how this affects public health, public safety, and social equity. Right. Um, and so, uh, so with respect to cannabis, um, you know, it's interesting within you know within the United States when we talk about legalization, um, we're usually talking about the kind of let's regulate cannabis like alcohol for profit commercial model. That's what gets most of the attention here in the U.S. But it turns out that if you're looking at for alternatives to prohibiting cannabis supply, there are a number of kind of middle ground options that you could consider, right? To where you could reduce arrests, allow for some access to supply, but not necessarily have a full commercial market. You know, for example, you could just allow home grows, you could do cannabis social clubs. You know, you could even potentially have a state monopoly where you have state stores um, selling the cannabis products. And in fact, that's, you know, that's what, and we still have some places that do that for liquor here in the United States. And in fact, there's some places in Canada that that's what they're, uh, they've got it kind of using a state store model. Um, you can imagine, you can also limit the market to nonprofit organizations, um, or even if you're going to allow for-profit companies to get involved, you can at least require that they be kind of for benefit or, um, you know, or B Corps, right. That focus on the triple bottom line of people, planet and profit. So there are a lot of choices there. I got to tell you in the United States, those middle ground options don't get a lot of play. When I talk to people and talk to jurisdictions outside of the United States, there's much more interest in these middle ground options. You know, even when I talk, especially in Europe, even when I talk to folks that are very much kind of in the legalization camp, you know, they ask me like, what are you guys doing in the United States? Like, why are you allowing the companies to decide what products get sold, what the potency levels are? Why are you just giving control to the companies? Why don't you, you could be a lot more restrictive if you wanted to be. Um, so anyway, so it's kind of, so it's interesting in terms of, you know, so I, I get the sense that outside of the U.S., uh, I mean, so there are a lot of places that want to keep it prohibited, but there is a lot more interest in some of these middle ground options that can reduce some of the criminal justice costs, uh, but don't necessarily kind of create this for-profit market, right? Because, right. I mean, it's like with alcohol, it's the 80-20 rule, Prado's law. You know, they found with alcohol, it's 20% of the uh, people who consume alcohol account for 80% of the consumption, 80% of the expenditures, Right. So if you're an alcohol company, that's who you target. That's where you're right. going to make most of your money. We did some work for the White House, oh gosh, seven years ago with respect to cannabis, found almost the same thing. It was 20% of the people who use cannabis. And so this was typically your people who use it on a daily or near daily basis, accounted for 80% of the consumption. So you have to decide, you know, if that's, uh, you know, if you want to have companies trying to, you know, try to, you know, kind of, you know, increase heavy use. And that's a choice. Um, and so, you know, so Jared, getting back to your question, what would be the appropriate um, uh, approach, right? I mean, it depends on your perspective, right? And so if you're a person who uses cannabis, um, you know, legalization with this for-profit model, well, well, you know, increases the number of options that you have. Over time, it reduces the prices. I know it's, ta it's taken a bit longer here in California, but outside of the outside of California, I mean, we're seeing huge price drops. Like for example, you know, sixty percent reduction in the price for flour in Oregon. You know, forty percent drop in Michigan. I mean, so it, it takes some time. Um, but um, you know, so if you're a person who uses cannabis, well, the prices are going down for the most part. More selection, I can have it delivered to me. So for you, you know, especially for someone who's spending a significant amount of their income on cannabis, this is a win, right? Right? You know, from a public health perspective, you know, having all this advertising and the lower prices and having the companies involved. You know, there are a lot of folks on the public health side that aren't excited about that, you know, and uh, so, you know, and also in terms of, you know, you know, what's the right policy, you know, I mentioned goals, right, you know, so if your goal 
was to reduce the size of the illegal market as quickly as possible. Well, what you would do is you would give out a ton of licenses. You'd have really low taxes. You try to push those prices down, you know, as a way to where it just wouldn't be competitive for those in the illegal market to be selling. Right. Right. And you move people over. There are other people that, you know, you know, they're fine if it takes longer to significantly reduce the size of the illegal market. If that means that we have rigorous testing, if it means that we have got taxes, if it means that we don't have the prices bottoming out. Right. And so I've noticed that, you know, starting in California, but, you know, throughout the U.S. and other places, I think it's really important for people when they're talking about reforming cannabis laws to be upfront about what are they prioritizing? Because if you understand what goal, what people, what their goals are and what their priorities are, it's easier to have a, a, a more productive conversation, right? If I know that your focus is on reducing the size of the illegal market, if that's what you're primarily focusing on, you know, that's very different. You know, we're going to have a different conversation potentially than if your goal was to, um, um, you know, if the goal is to maximize revenues to the state or something, right. right? So, and so I just, and also, I mean, one of the things that's been um, really encouraging, you know, over the past, you know, 10, 12 years is how the conversations about social equity have evolved. And in fact, um, you know, when, when Colorado and Washington were initially having conversations about legalizing, social equity wasn't really part of the conversation. I mean, there people were talking about reducing arrests and reducing, the, you know, disparities with right. respect to race and ethnicity, but you know, equity wasn't a big part of the conversation. But then over time, you saw places begin to talk about, well, not only reducing arrests, maybe we need to expunge or seal criminal offenses related to cannabis. And so you saw some places that they would, you know, began kind of cutting down that pathway, but then they would still put the onus on the individual. So if you've been convicted, you would have to petition the court. You may have to hire a lawyer. You know, so it still would create barriers, uh, especially for those individuals that didn't have a lot of resources. So then you saw other places begin to say, wait, no, the onus should be on the state. The state should be responsible for kind of expunging or selling these offenses. And then you've seen other places talking about how they're going to use cannabis tax revenues um, to, you know, to, to address the discrimination, address some of these inequities. And for example, in Evanston, Illinois, they're using some of their cannabis tax revenues for slavery reparations. Uh, for individuals in their community. And uh, and then you've also, you know, in California, other places, there are discussions about license preferences for groups that were disproportionately affected by cannabis prohibition. Um, so it's been, I'm really happy in the, in a lot of places now, social equity is one of the main things that gets discussed. Right. Um, and so what I'm hoping in terms of kind of next steps, you know, because there are a lot, you know, if you're thinking about social equity, you know, you've got to make a lot of decisions about well, what groups am I trying to target? What's the goal? Is it to build wealth in certain communities? Is it to you know, increase employment in some places? So I think the next step, especially kind of from a research perspective, um, is for jurisdictions to say, okay, let's be clear about what the goals are for these equity programs. And now let's look at a three or four different potential models and let's see which one you know, is most closely aligned with what we're trying to do here on equity. And so, um, so I, and I, think that, I think that's where you're gonna see a lot of research happening. Um, uh, kind of in the near future, as more places begin kind of trying to figure out, well, if I want to, you know, if I want to maximize, if I want to maximize our efforts in terms of addressing equity, should I do A, B, C, or D, you know? Interesting. Uh, another thing, you know, we talked to Scott Wiener about was he had a bill SB 519, which would decriminalize psychedelics. And kind of what Scott was saying is that psychedelics have been shown to help with addiction and depression issues. 
Is, is that kind of what your research has shown and kind of what can you tell us about that? Well, we're, I'm glad you mentioned that. I'm just starting to do kind of more work in the space. And so, look, there has been, and I actually listened to uh, uh, Senator Weiner on your pod uh, talking about this uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Um, so, there, you know, there's been a fair amount of research over the past 20 years, kind of in, in, in clinical environments. You know, so this is, this is research that's overseen by the FDA you know, in terms of, you know, these clinical trials where, you know, people will get psilocybin or they'll get MDMA and, you know, and then they'll kind of look at, you know, you know, for addressing different types of uh, mental health conditions. And, um, and as Scott mentioned too, I mean, there was a lot of research happening in the fifties and sixties, and then it kind of shut down in the seventies, eighties, nineties, but really started to pick back up. I say, oh, you know, within, you know, over the past 20 years. So you've got all this kind of research happening, showing that for some people, you know, certain substances are having really beneficial effects. And, um, you know, with respect to depression or with uh, PTSD, I mean, it depends on the population, also depends on the, on the substance that we're talking about. So you've got all that kind of happening. But at the same time, you also have different local governments and different state governments changing their policies with respect to uh, psychedelics. And, and so, you know, you know, I think it really started like 2019 in Denver. And so I, I think one of the things that's helpful here, Jared, is when um, when people people often will use this word decriminalization to talk about a lot of different policy choices. And I, I think one of the things that's helpful is for people to be, be very clear about what's happening. So in a lot of places, they said at the local government, they decriminalized, which when we talk about decriminalization, we're typically talking about you know, reducing the penalties. So if you get caught possessing, it's no longer a criminal offense. So when we talk about decriminalization, we're usually not talking about supply. But what ended up happening in a, in a number of kind of local jurisdictions is that what they didn't necessarily, it was called, they people referred to it as decriminalization. But what they did is that it was called, is more like deprioritization. So they didn't necessarily change the law. They just said, look, it's going to be the lowest enforcement priority for the police and prosecutors to focus on offenses related to psychedelic possession. Right. So they right. deprioritize it. They didn't necessarily change the law. So that's what we've seen in a number of places. Um, but in 2020 in Oregon, two things happened. They passed two initiatives. They passed one initiative, which decriminalized the possession of all controlled substances, which included psilocybin, included other psychedelics. And so essentially they have to get caught with a small amount, either pay up, it's not, no longer a criminal offense. You pay up to a, potentially either up to a hundred dollar fine, or you can kind of do a screening. If you do this mental health screen or substance use screening, you essentially don't have to pay the fine. That was one of the things that passed in 2020 in, uh, in Oregon. But then there was another initiative that passed in 2020, which essentially legalized kind of supervised consumption of psilocybin. And so, the, so they've been. So essentially, there's going to be separate centers set up throughout the state. They have to be licensed, and those that are kind of administering psilocybin will also um, be. Uh, they also uh, they're, they are, they're all, they also have to get licensed. Interesting. And yeah, yeah. So anyway, so that's so, and they're in the process of you know setting those up right now in Oregon. It's interesting in Colorado, they did they um, in November they passed an initiative. Which did two things. Which one, it kind of set up similar kind of what they're called healing centers. So places where you can go for a supervised uh, psilocybin um, for supervised psilocybin services. Um, but then also, what didn't get as much attention is there. If you're an adult, 
they legalize possession, cultivation, and sharing of uh, psilocybin and uh, DMT and other plant-based psychedelics. So there then you can, you know, I'm not sure when it goes into effect, um, but you're going to be able to grow it yourself and give it away to others. And so that's very different kind of, yeah. So it'll be, you know, and, and at the end of the day, you know, as with the cannabis, this is still still all illegal under federal law. Right. So, so yeah, so you've got all the medical research happening, but then you have all this policy change. And uh, the, I'd say the one thing, in some ways, it's kind of similar to what we saw with cannabis and that, you know, you had, you know, a lot of this would start with these ballot initiatives. Then when there was less stigma, you know, the state legislature started dealing with this. Um, but I would say what's, what we're seeing now with psychedelics, it's much more compressed, right? I mean, it, it was only a couple of years ago that you had cities started to deprioritize psilocybin, you know, possession, and maybe some other plant-based psychedelics. Then in 2020, you had one state legalizing the supervised um, um, psychedelic services. And now you've got what happened in Colorado. So things are moving much more quickly in the psychedelic space. Interesting. You know, it seems like you you get to meet a lot of interesting characters, uh, you know, and and (laughs) a lot of, you know, black market or whatever, like, you know, do you have any kind of interesting stories of of meeting some of these drug dealers or cartel folks throughout your kind of research? Yeah, I'll end with this one. And so this was someone who I think at one point was was pretty involved. And um, so this was oh, this had to be 2010, 2011-ish. And it was at that time we were trying to get a better sense of how would cannabis legalization, um, what would it do to the prices? Um, right. Because there, there are a number of reasons why we believe that prohibition kind of raises the, uh, um, you know, raises the cost of doing business. Right. And, and this is big because a lot of the outcomes that get discussed in legalization debates, consumption, size of the illegal market, tax revenues, profitability for businesses, all that depends on the price. And so we had done some work and talked to some people um, and, and really kind of made it clear, like, look, when you legalize over time, you're really going to push these production distribution costs down. And that's what we're seeing in a lot of places. It's taking a little bit longer in California, but you are seeing some downward pressure on the prices. But anyways, um, but I was still kind of, we were still, you know, we talked to people, and but we were still looking into this. And so at that time, I mean, so people know about the Netherlands, right? And right. so you go to Amsterdam, I mean, essentially you could walk into any of those coffee shops and buy up to five grams. Um, they, they kind of consider it kind of legal in the front door. However, it's still illegal to produce cannabis and sell it to those uh, coffee shops. So they say it was like legal in the front door, illegal in the back door. And so, I mean, that's how it still continues to operate, although they're beginning to experiment. But anyways, they're also, they had a small medical program there. They might've had a thousand people, um, but but they were producing, I mean, I think at that time it was only four strains for their medical program. And uh, it, you know, it was very, kind of, because it was a medical product, you know, they were spending a lot of time, you know, it was, you know, you know, in terms of really good in terms of pesticides, it was, you know, it was pretty high potency. I, I forget what the THC levels were, were, but I mean, one could argue, so this is what, you know, 10, 11 years ago. I mean, this was some of the best quality cannabis that was being produced in the world, right, right for flower. So anyways, I wanted to go kind of check out this facility. So this guy who had been around quite a bit, um, again, you know, he knows, he knows, he knows uh, who to talk to. So we're driving and so we're like, we're, and I, you know, we're having this great conversation and I'm learning a ton from him about his experiences in the past. And, uh, 
And, and so like three hours outside of Amsterdam and all of a sudden it seems like we're in this residential neighborhood. Like what in the heck are we doing? But sure enough, we're in this place and we actually walk in and it was the growth facility for this small program and, you know, for this small medical program at the time. And it just was, you know, compared to what we see in California now, this is nothing. But Correct. at the time, I mean, it was just a pretty small facility. And, uh, you know, so they showed me the rooms and where they're growing and everything. They opened up their books to me and like, you know, in terms of, you know, the finances, in terms of what does it actually cost to, you know, produce a gram? And so this was what, 10, 11 years ago, a super small facility, very high quality product. For them, it was about a euro a gram. You know, and so I'm just, and just I'm thinking to myself, wow, you, you imagine some of these really big grows that kind of over time, I mean, these prices are just going to drop dramatically. Right. Anyways, um, but it was a really great experience. You know, I'm with this guy. I don't know where the heck I'm going. I'm like, why am I in this kind of what seems like a neighborhood? Um, but uh, so that was a really interesting uh, uh, interaction. And so, yeah. And so, no, it's been, um, you know, I've, you know, you know, spent time talking to people who participate in the industry, those that are on the law enforcement side. And uh, yeah, and so, I mean, that's one of the great things about being at RAND and that, you know, we don't have a, you know, we don't have a dog in this fight. You know, we're not coming at this with, we have to do this policy or we can't do this policy. And so it really means that it allows me, it kind of creates the space for me to have conversations with a lot of different people that have a lot of different insights. Yeah. Well, let us know when you go down into Columbia and start doing some research. Oh, I've been, <laughs> oh yeah. I was just, I was just in, so I've done a fair amount in Columbia and um, in fact, I actually spent time, you know, the, it was at the time, the State Department, and I think the United Nations, they actually had separate plots of land where they were growing coca. So then they could test out different, you know, test out different pesticides and different things. So I remember flying, I don't even know where it was in the country, flying out to this, uh, this farm. And then actually, so not only seeing them grow the coca, but then they actually showed how they, they actually walked through the process of growing it or, right. or producing right. it going in the gasoline and everything, the whole process. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's led to a lot of really interesting experiences. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, Bo, thank you so much for joining us. Definitely learned a lot. If uh, some of our listeners kind of want to follow some of your work or some of the stuff at the RAND Corporation, how, how can we get a hold of you or, or see what you're doing? Yeah. So, I mean, the website is just, you know, www.randrand.org, or you could just go into Google and type in RAND Drug Policy Research Center. No, it'll show, our page will show up. We've got a number of different publications there. And then also I'm on Twitter at, at Bo Kilmer. Okay. Awesome, Bo. Okay. Well, thanks a lot and have a great weekend. And thanks hey, for joining thanks us. Thanks so much for having me, Jared. You take All care. Right. Thanks. Bye. Bye.